I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. to the Explaining History podcast and today I'm going to talk more about war correspondence and the First World War and the development of the, the kind of the, the career of the uh, the role of the, the war correspondent which was um, an entirely um, modern uh, phenomenon um, for example people like um, William Howard Russell during the Crimean War and indeed Winston Churchill uh, during the uh, the Boer War. War correspondents uh, were good business as far as newspaper editors were concerned. They brought a constant stream of exciting news stories to the uh, domestic population, and I'm talking particularly in Britain here, uh, but obviously that there are um, parallels in uh, uh, other European countries um, and the United States, and generally um, countries where there were high levels of mass literacy, um, cheap printing, and a, a, a need for a constant slew of news reporting. Um, the uh, yellow press in America uh, of um, Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst um, made uh, immense uh, immense profits from tales of the uh, Spanish-American War in Cuba and the Philippines. The war correspondent as propagandist is uh, really a, a beast of the, um, the First World War. Uh, not that the uh, war correspondent didn't do essential propaganda roles during the uh, Crimean and Boer Wars um, and didn't have sort of deep-held biases towards their own side, which inevitably they did do, um, and uh, present the um, British as the either the heroic victors or the persecuted victims um, whereas the, as the pictures are normally obviously far more complicated and uh, nuanced and um, subtle than that. But it wasn't systematic. It, there was no Ministry of Information. Instead, generals seemed to have to put up with um, these rather, irritant, uh, rather irritating characters who were uh, stopping them from, or interfering with, or just a general encumbrance on their job. Uh, as um, military commander. 
I think part of the um, attraction of war writing in the British press is because before the First World War, when the British Army was a small and professionalised corps of career soldiers uh, and not a, a mass conscript army, the uh, involvement with warfare and the uh, risks associated with it uh, was concentrated to a tiny, tiny portion of the population. Everybody else tended to hear about this second hand. Also, none of the wars fought, such as the Opium Wars or the Boer War or the Crimean War, were wars of national survival. These were imperialist wars about establishing Britain's hegemony in Asia, Africa and over the Near East. So there was something very attractive about these kinds of narratives and they obviously feed into um, this sense of, um, in, of exceptionalism, of racial supremacy and of British nationalism in the 19th century. Whereas First World War reporting was going to be quite a, a different phenomenon altogether. Lord Kitchener, who had first-hand experience of um, war reporters in Sudan, where he destroyed the Mahdi uh, movement, um, he loathed them and didn't want them anywhere near the British Expeditionary Force in France. Um, his, the core of um, the Expeditionary Force, the BEF's officers, agreed and didn't really um, want to have uh, correspondence from the Daily Mail um, and uh, the Times uh, hovering around. They think they were, they were general nuisance, were likely to get killed. The strategy dreamt up by Lord Northcliffe of the Daily Mail um, was to send somebody that the officers would consider a gentleman, a sportsman, someone who knew um, about, uh, say, riding um, and who could um, uh, keep up with them on, on horseback. Um, and the kind of person who would be invited to the officers' club. Um, so the sporting editor of the Daily Mail um, was sent to buy a horse and, be, and was sent to the war office to report, to which the war office um, responded that there were no um, immediate plans to, to give um, war correspondence accreditation. And the Times also found um, that they were shut out as well. So the biggest newspapers in Britain found themselves without correspondence in uh, Europe um, at the outbreak of war. And instead they had to rely on a very dry daily communique from the army uh, from Paris. And these were also wildly misleading. The uh, official write-ups sent to the press were approved by generals and were there to help protect their careers uh, and help to protect their um, egos. As they would later find out, uh, generals like French and Rawlinson and Haig were actually quite well taken care of by the press um, when the uh, shell crisis of 1915 uh, emerged where it turned out that Britain was ill-prepared for war and didn't have enough artillery shells for the kind of heavy anti-trench bombardments that were defining the war, uh, the newspapers uh, turned on the government and took the heat out of any criticism of the generals themselves. The war uh, reporting on the Eastern Front was uh, an entirely different story. The uh, Russians 
had uh, very few correspondents, and those that they uh, had were not allowed anywhere near the front line. Um, the Russian people seemed particularly poorly informed uh, about the progress of the war, and it's really uh, soldiers returning and telling horror stories about the front that uh, begin to um, disseminate these ideas in Russian society. Uh, Germany imposed complete military censorship from the start of the war, and no, there were no German war correspondents allowed anywhere near the front, and all news um, was uh, sent home via a twice-weekly press conference um, from the uh, German general headquarters. Uh, as Philip Knightley reports, one of the general rules that the uh, German officer who would stand in front of the press had to abide by was that it is not so much the accuracy of the news as its effect that matters. Now, this all seems highly um, undemocratic and uh, closed and disingenuous, um, but it was a system that was very much adhered to by uh, the British. If you have you listened to the previous podcast I did about the um, wartime Ministry of Information, except the British just did it differently. They did it in cooperation with um, newspapers um, who colluded in a um, misleading version of the war to the general public. The uh, German War Office, the Kriegpressamt, uh, which was controlled by the general staff, offered um, its own periodicals and booklets and pamphlets, um, and it organised also censorship. Um, and officer correspondents um, within the army would provide information in terms of uh, military reports uh, to the Kriegpressamt, um, who would then disseminate it. So it neatly cut the commercial press out of the whole operation. Again, the British view of um, the dissemination of information was not entirely dissimilar. Um, and the British general staff uh, were uh, took the lead on this. Uh, censorship, obviously, the Defence of the Realm Act, was imposed on August the 2nd, 1914, and the appointment by Kitchener of Colonel Sir Ernest Swinton um, to the staff, or the general staff of the Commander-in-Chief, um, to write reports uh, on the progress of the war um, was Kitchener's only real concession towards uh, any kind of uh, openness. Um, but these were, um, uh, these were, again, wildly misleading uh, and misleading, not because they told direct lies, but because they omitted most important information. So, um, generally, the, the role um, that Swinton saw he had was to avoid helping the enemy, to mislead the enemy where possible, and to tell the public um, only as much of the truth as the, he thought that the, the general public uh, were prepared to, 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 to deal with. So in 1914, for example, in September, uh, eight, uh, September the 18th, 1914, Swinton reported on the conditions in the trenches um, on the Aisne. And he said, It may be said that along the great, uh, greater part of our front, the Germans have been driven back from their forward slopes on the north of the river. Their infantry are holding the strong lines of trenches amongst and along the edges of the numerous woods which crown these slopes. The trenches are elaborately constructed, where our men are holding the forward edges of the high ground on the north side. They are now strongly entrenched. They are well fed, and in spite of the weather of the past week, are cheerful and confident. 
again, the uh, the lack of any kind of meaningful detail and, and sort of bland generalizations was a, a skillful way of trying to control the flow of information. Editors became quickly frustrated and they um, looked to Churchill, uh, at the First Lord of the Admiralty, uh, to do something about all of this. And Churchill, a former war correspondent, again was uh, pretty inflexible, uh, as Kitchener was. And so most um, war correspondents, most newspapers, hired war correspondents to get round this problem and, and to be uh, unofficial and not, as we would call it now, embedded reporters. A succession of, kind of chances and adventurers, men who had experienced war before, uh, either as combatants or previous uh, correspondents, um, or who were um, these kinds of rather hair-raising figures that you find in and around the periphery of conflict, were hired by Fleet Street to go out to Europe. Um, one of the first was um, Granville Fortescue. Um, he was an American freelance journalist um, who'd been in the White House. Uh, he'd been a White House aide in Washington, a military observer in the Russo-Japanese War, an explorer in Venezuela, and a war correspondent uh, in Morocco um, for the, uh, the 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 Standard newspaper, the Evening Standard. Um, and during his during the start of the First World War. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, he had been in Belgium and headed to London, sent his family to London, and sent a telegram to the Daily Telegraph saying, I'm uh, ready for action, I'm ready for service, what do you think? When he got no response, um, he finally filed a story, um, the greatest scoop of his career, um, on uh, August the 3rd, that German troops had invaded the invaded Belgium, uh, and it was the front, store, front page story on the Daily Telegraph. Um, the headline being uh, "Country Invaded by German Troops" from our own correspondent. 
this uh, scoop uh, landed him uh, a job as a, a roving war correspondent, and it meant that other British newspapers began to uh, race to the Europe uh, and began to uh, send uh, as many uh, stringers and correspondents as they could to Europe to try to catch up with this uh, extraordinary exclusive. So what this shows us is war reporting was uh, obviously a product of the rivalry and the uh, competitiveness of the newspaper industry itself, which didn't stop attempting to make a profit simply because um, a war of national, um, national significance, national survival, some might argue, had begun on the continent. Kitchener, irritated by all this, um, demanded that any correspondent found in France be uh, arrested, uh, found in, you know, on the front, uh, be arrested, um, have their passport confiscated and be uh, expelled back to England or wherever they came from. And there, was, there were attempts by correspondents to get round this, to get the exclusive. Um, the uh, Times uh, man in Paris uh, organised a, a group of what he called keen young men to travel behind Allied lines and they were instructed be as inconspicuous as possible, go over the ground by train to a certain point, then by bicycle or on foot. The principal thing is to keep rigidly away from the English who take a fiendish delight in arresting war correspondents. The uh, writing that they compiled, the information they compiled, was then couriered um, back to London um, in a, a complicated system of relays of cars and uh, trains um, between Paris and Boulogne and then Folkestone and London on the other side of the Channel. Um, the Daily Chronicle sent Philip Gibbs um, to France. He had started his career on a, 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 little, a smaller newspaper, the Daily Graphic, and his job for them as a sketch artist had been to go to Serbia and to go up and down the front line, um, taking, uh, drawing images um, and sending those back uh, to, to London. Philip Knightley reports what he had to say. It's, it's very interesting. Um, he's, he, had, he said uh, he had Im an immeasurable ignorance of the meaning of warfare. I know nothing about its methods and its machinery, the, immense, uh, the immensity and range of its destruction. I thought it would be like the South African affair, remote, picturesque and romantic. Um, he said that um, the crown of the journalistic ambition, the heart of its adventure and romance, was covering war. And if you look at uh, correspondence in the Second World War, uh, you find remarkably similar sentiments coming forth. Ideas that this was the pinnacle of journalism, that this was the, the top of the tree. But also you have this, this naivety, and it's a, a naivety that, that is understandable because journalists weren't just the only ones that were naive about the level of destruction that would result from this conflict. Most of the writing uh, that appeared in uh, British newspapers was about the Western Front. Um, so, for example, one of the most significant events of the war the destruction of the Russian army at uh, the Battle of Tannenberg and the Masurian Lakes in August 1914. Uh, it is virtually unknown in uh, Britain and, and also in France. The um, focus on the Western Front, uh, which has continued long after the war and really has, it still shapes 
um, the British conception of what the First World War uh, was uh, only becomes really uh, a, a very negative focus after the Battle of the Somme in 1916. Kitchener continued in uh, 1915 to wage his uh, private war uh, against war correspondents uh, without being able to really see what use that they might possibly have, which later turns out to be of considerable uh, use. The uh, short-sightedness of this is clear when you understand that the Defence of the Realm Act had the government and the army covered anyway, that newspapers were obliged to publish really what the government wanted, uh, and so censorship was laid down in law, voted through by Parliament without any problem. And help came from a rather unlikely source. There were a large number of American uh, war correspondents who were uh, writing or wished to write for British newspapers and uh, were either arrested by the British Army or sent back to uh, Britain or sent back to America. And when um, the Foreign Secretary, Sir Edward Grey, received a letter from former President Theodore Roosevelt... Um, who was a, an enthusiast for uh, Britain's, Britain in the war and thought that America should um, perhaps intervene somehow. Um, Roosevelt said to Gray that the uh, practice of banning um, war correspondence, particularly American war correspondence, was preventing uh, information from getting to an American audience and it was harming Britain's standing with the American population. The uh, hope that America might enter the war was um, a, a very a real and uh, very significant one amongst the British government, uh, who by 1916 uh, were bankrupted by the war. And anything that could be uh, used to sway American popular opinion was uh, a, a, an enormous benefit. German uh, military authorities by this point had changed their mind and had started to lavish enormous attention on American war correspondence. The German government didn't think for a moment that America was likely to join the war uh, on Germany's side, but they, suddenly, they certainly thought that uh, American popular opinion, if it uh, was more favourable towards Germany, uh, might be less likely to join a war against Germany. Roosevelt wrote... There has been a very striking contrast between the lavish attention showered on war correspondence by the German military authorities and the point-blank refusal um, to have anything to do with them by the British and French governments. The only real war news written by Americans who are known to and trusted by the American public comes from the German side. If you think American public opinion should be taken into account then it is worth your while considering whether much of your censorship work and much of your refusal to allow correspondence at the front has not been a danger to your cause from the standpoint of the effect on public opinion without any corresponding military gains. So the gradual trickle of correspondence to the front line began. But when asked, for example, how much of the war they should cover and what they should be allowed to say, General Charteris, Chief of Intelligence, said to one correspondent, Say what you like, old man, but don't mention any places or people, uh, which rather invalidated the, the whole process. 
The new uh, group of war correspondents were all given um, an honorary status as captain, so they were uh, officers um, and had a, uh, a green band on their right arm. They were given officers' uniforms, but without badges or insignia, and uh, they were held up in the same house, a, um, a small house in the village of Tattingen, um, as their headquarters, and provided with all sorts of things that they need, orderlies, lorries, cars, um, and the uh, military chaperones to uh, make sure they didn't get killed and to take them to places that the general staff found useful, but perhaps not places that the correspondents wanted to go. However, this kind of management was still a significant step forward uh, from the sort of harassment that they'd faced from Kitchener previously. Kitchener's uh, death on the high seas uh, might well have been one of the things that sort of greases the wheels ever so slightly. And the military ch- chaperone that they were uh, given, uh, t- named uh, the conducting officer, um, were, were generally instructed by headquarters to waste the journalist's time as much as possible um, and to uh, show them as little of use as possible. Now, here you see a tension between the uh, general staff of the British Army and the government itself. The uh, uh, the generals saw themselves as really the king's generals, not uh, the cabinet's generals. And they saw themselves certainly not answerable to um, a little lower class upstart like uh, David Lloyd George. Instead, um, they thought that the conduct of the war was not a civilian business. And the idea that they were the representatives of a, a mass democracy, uh, a mass parliamentary democracy, and had to really abide by what an elected government told them to do was almost completely, uh, completely lost on them. So much so that uh, generals like French um, communicated directly with the king when they had something that they uh, had a bee in their bonnet about uh, over Parliament. And there was enormous showdowns eventually between Lloyd George and uh, Kitchener. So the idea that they should be encumbered with journalists, even though it was clearly a good idea and clearly something that um, the war cabinet wanted, um, was uh, robustly defended and uh, ignored and sidelined. And much of this, I suspect, has got to do more with social class and about the operating of entrenched elites than it has got to do about military efficacy. Anyway, we're going to continue with this one um, a a little more uh, and hopefully talk uh, about the disaster at Gallipoli and how that's covered. Um, And we will look at the works of uh, Sir Keith Murdoch, father to the Dark Lord himself, um, and we'll chat about that next time. Anyway, I hope you've enjoyed this. I'm going to put a link in the uh, podcast blurb below if you want to support us on Patreon. And also, if you can... Go to the iTunes page, give us a nice write-up, a thumbs up, a five-star review if you can, and that's all to the good. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus. Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.